spring. Time for all party animals on campus to graze their way south. They are a common species at the University of Georgia, Partius animalis. They flock to Daytona and Panama City, but if the herd is big enough and the money holds out long enough, they migrate to Fort Lauderdale. Our mission is to study this migration. It's not an easy job, but somebody's got to do it. The fraternity is Kai Sai. Perhaps you'd like to meet the boys. Here they are. Sophomore Scott Barr. He's an econ major who wants to work with computers when he graduates, like IBM, AT&T, or any other place with three letters. Last book read, biology. Memorable quote, let's party. Junior Joe Macero. He's an advertising major who would someday like to work on Madison Avenue. His strategy for meeting women, a southern accent, as heavy as he can make it. Joe should know he's a veteran of spring break. Sophomore Todd Tibbetts, known to some as The Rock. He's also an econ major. His favorite junk food, Whoppers and Snickers. His goal this week, to meet a lot of people of the opposite sex. Finally, freshman Ronnie Stroud, alias Musclehead. His major, undecided. His goal later in life, to make a lot of money. Memorable quote, gee, that's a tough one there, Mark. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is the Rubik's Cube Master, Nick Vance. Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance. You can find me at Paranoid Features on all the social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. Uh, if you'd like to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim, what are we talking about today? Well, first we're going to talk about, hey, how's the Rubik's Cube stuff going? <laughs> uh, I haven't really messed with it too much since, since the last podcast. It's been a, I've been going outside this month. I maybe solved it like once since that <laughs> last time, so I haven't actually been trying to get my, my time better. I just had to flex on you guys for a minute, but... You know, I'll get back to it. I mean, it's understandable. There's, you know, vaccines are here. I mean, I think by the 15th or maybe right around when this podcast is going live or a little before or after. I don't know. I don't know when this is actually coming out. So I, I, you would think I would know when this, this was actually coming out, but whatever. Sometime in April, this episode's playing and you're listening to it. Or you're listening it to a later time because you didn't listen to it right away. Who knows? But either way, vaccinations are happening, so I guess that's part of the reason why you haven't become the three-second Rubik Cube's master. That I was hoping that you would actually get to. I'll get there. <laughs> get there. <laughs> but besides Rubik's Cubes, we're talking about another great American pastime. One that 
probably ill-advised happen, you know, twice during this pandemic now. And of course, we're talking about Spring Break, brah. So today we're going to talk about a bunch of movies that are related to Spring Break or beaches and stuff like that. A couple of these films, honestly, are personal, personal favorites. There's a couple that, eh, not really personal favorites, but well, well, as we unravel this Rubik's Cube of Spring Break, I guess you don't unravel, you unlock. What's the actual terminology for Rubik's Cube maneuvering? We're not going to do this. Until until you until I see you beat a Rubik's cube, I'll have no more of this. Oh man, come on, man! You know who else is really good at Rubik's cube? Justin Bieber. Is he like really good? Yeah. Man. Also, Will Smith. Are you just making up names now? Real talk. Both those guys are Rubik's cube champions. <laughs> You know, I, I is there? You know, I haven't really done the research, but now I kind of want to. As we've already derailed the podcast right off the bat, what, I wonder if there's movies outside of that documentary where Rubik's cubes are the main plot point, like some war game scenario. I I looked. <laughs> <laughs> I found nothing. I mean, I I can I already see in my head, and it's just like you know Ralph Macchio or Eric Roberts or someone like that, like just going head to head against like who would be the bad guy in like a Rubik's cube movie. I'm trying to think like who would be the typical '80s villain. It's like Christopher Walken. So Christopher Walken versus Ralph Macchio in like the finals of a Rubik's cube tournament, and just like going to town and like see who could get the fastest, and like you know it becomes like over the top. Just take an arm wrestling, put a Rubik's cube. You gotta put that Rubik's cube together. It's the you know, win a truck and save your kid. It's times like these, I wish I could do a walking impression. <laughs> you know, that, that's one of the most common impressions people can do, and I can't fucking do one either. It's it, it's too obvious. But all right, enough about Rubik's cubes. I think they might revisit because well, a lot of these wow. movies are from the eighties. You know, there, there's time for Rubik's cubes. Simon. What was another big thing in the eighties? Glowworms. Lightbright. Battleship. Battleship, shit, yeah. Candyland, I don't know. Folgers, like, instant coffee. Like, the, the 80s were just full of stuff. And I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure all these movies were essentially the 80s. I think one of them gets close to the 90s. But overall, we're going to be living in the 80s. Which seems like a great time, except for Ronald Reagan and deregulation. And a bunch of things that probably set up to where we are now in the world. But let's not get political. Let's hit the beach, but not hit the beach like the Spring Breakers that are currently at the beach or were at the beach. I mean, you heard about that shit that happened in Miami, right? I don't know. It seems like all the comedians I'm into are like moving to Miami. Everybody's just hanging out in Miami. Well, I mean, it's like Florida never actually shut down. So I guess it, it, you know, there's sun, hurricanes, Disney World, COVID, you know, it, cocaine, cocaine. Yeah. I guess between Disney World and the Scarface lifestyle, there's a lot of appeal to Florida. But, like, you and I have both been to Florida. And I guess if you've never been to Florida or you aren't from Florida, the secret of Florida is Florida is a southern state. And it, outside of the beach towns, it's, as I alienate anyone from this podcast who's from Florida. <laughs> it's, it's a different world down there. I mean, you got different worlds. You got, like, you know, the death metal scene, which is, like, Tampa and all that. You got Jacksonville, which is Redneck Central. You got 
you know, Gainesville, which was, I guess, kind of a college town, right? Yeah, they have the uh, the fest there every year. It's just called the fest that tons of punk bands go and play and uh, just descend upon that town for a weekend. But, you know, we're not going to be talking about any of those places in Florida. The key Florida town we're talking about is Fort Lauderdale, which is considered the home of Spring Break. And at least two of these movies are based in Fort Lauderdale. And as we've already talked about enough nonsense of Rubik's Cubes and frat boys and cocaine and, you know, all the stuff that makes Florida, Florida. I guess we'll talk about Spring Break. And the first movie we're going to talk about is a movie from 1983. It's directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who also directed Friday the 13th. He was the producer on Last House on the Left as well. Also made some porns. And this is a little bit of departure because it's a comedy. A sex comedy, though. We're talking about Spring Break. And, I don't know. I'm going to just say this isn't one of my favorite sex comedies. And I'll get into why in a little bit. But the little details for those of you who haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it and want to see it, I think it's available on Amazon Prime for like three bucks. Or it's part of a, I think Mill Creek put it out as like a four-pack DVD with um, Private Resort, Hard Bodies, and... I can't think of the name of the movie right now, but it's the Jamie Lee Curtis, um, John Travolta, like, aerobics movie. It's a pretty good four-pack. It's ten bucks. It's kind of worth it, because, actually, that's, that's a pretty good one. But the film stars David Nell, Perry Lang, who pivoted to become a director later in his career, Paul Lann, Steve Bassett, and former two-time Penthouse Pen of the Month and Pet of the Year, Corinne Alfin. And for the plot, which a lot of sex comedies are very loose on, but... This has a, I guess, a meaty paragraph of description. Stu and O.T. are two studs from the big city who arrive in Fort Lauderdale for spring break. They discover that the room they have reserved is an overcrowded motel already being occupied by Nelson and Adam, a pair of college nerds. With no other accommodations available, Nelson and Adam reluctantly agree to share a room with Stu and O.T. The wet t-shirt contest and beer-guzzling fun are threatened when Nelson's controlling stepdad shows up, along with a building inspector who wants to shut down the motel. You know, obviously, we're starting off with this movie because the theme of the podcast is right in the fucking title, Spring Break. And I don't know when Spring Break became this hot thing, but I think it was the 80s that it became this bigger, bigger thing. And I can, you know, after Sean Cunningham pretty much monetized the slasher market post-Halloween with Friday 13th and that franchise, he was trying to tap into the non-murderous, horny teen market, as it were. For a man who made pornos at one point in his career, it's not all that sexy. Nor is it all that really funny of a comedy. I'm not sure if that's the film's intent, but, you know, it's kind of heading towards a dramedy. And part of it is the pacing. It it just kind of drags as you watch it. It's like a hundred fucking minutes, which, like, no sex comedy of any era should be going over 90 minutes. Unless it's just credits. And post-credit sequences. Like the content of the movie should be between 80 and 90 minutes. And that movie, or I should say Spring Break, breaks that hardcore. Yeah, this is my favorite. It's actually my least favorite movie we are talking about today. I don't know, I was talking to Eddie, who's the social media manager for Cinematic Void, and he really loved this movie. He's like, what, you don't like it? And we were going back and forth when we were having a meeting earlier. I think earlier last week we were talking about it. And I was just like, yeah, just, it's boring. It's like, it, you know, there's some good things in it, but, like, there's just so much dead time, and it's just, like, no offense to the four main actors, and it's just, like, it doesn't move me. And I don't know, man. 
I want spring break to be fun, not fucking boring. Now, was this a uh, was this a flop when it came out? I, I think it was a modest hit. That uh, it's like Cheap Trick did the the theme, and I wonder if they were they thought they were jumping on board to something that would be a a huge movie or I don't know. Like yeah, the thing about Cheap Trick, this like you know. I think they released this as a B-side to a single, or it was released as a single, and it didn't chart at all. And I guess they they didn't give up on trying to get like a hit through a sex comedy, because a few years later, they ended up doing the main theme to the movie Up the Creek, which I think is actually a better song than the one that's in this movie. Yes. But, yeah, nothing about this really lands, at least for me. But, you know, a couple fun things to think about or mention the film was released on march 25th 1983 so during the peak of spring break i don't know if you're at spring break if you're gonna go see a movie about spring break i'm not sure how that works but i don't know it, the movie hits a lot of tropes that are in i i don't know how many outside of what we we talking about today how many like beach specific sex comedies you've seen but they all kind of have this same formula and I'm pretty sure this one was one of the first ones to do it, which is, you know, there's always like a little subplot about saving a business from getting shut down or a building getting torn down or bought out, which is the motel in this movie. And also an angry parent or relative or significant other being forced to come to spring break to the beach to retrieve the person they're looking for, which is one of the plot points in this. You know, I, I don't really trust critics, but there's a couple really, really choice quotes about this. And one comes from Roger Ebert, who... Best known for not really liking horror movies, but also known for writing Russ Meyers movies. So, let's just say Roger was a little biased to nudity-heavy sex comedies, because that's in his background. So, Roger Evert referred to Corinne Alfin as the best thing in this movie, and honestly, he's not wrong. She was also in a bunch of other, like, cult films that are kind of fun. She was in Uli Lamel's Brainwave, she was in Equalizer 2000, and Amazon Women on the Moon. So... She's in a lot of fun stuff. And funny enough, she kind of stepped away from acting and I guess being a penthouse pet and became a professional tarot reader in the 90s. Which is more of interest to me because she's originally from Lynn, Mass, or Lynn, Massachusetts, which is right near Salem, Massachusetts, which is a hotbed for tarot readers, witchcraft, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, more or less, it's just something that I care about. Might not be anything that anyone listening cares about, but goddammit, I'll mention the fact. The band in the film Hot Date was an actual real band from Fort Lauderdale. The band consisted of bassist vocalist Marilyn Max, guitarists Lori Galzua and Louis Chamberlain, and drummer Joanna Milhoski. Hot Date is a, a really great band name for a for an 80s band, and uh, it's a shame they didn't do more with it. Because it's just, it's really good. So a good band name, and actually not a bad band. Um, Corinne Alphen actually lip syncs to Max vocals in the two performances she has in the movies. And honestly, again, Roger Ebert's not wrong. Best part of the movie, really. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're going to be talking about more Spring Break, brah, on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. Nelson Dalby and Adam Stern are about to get the break of their lives. Spring Break. For some, it's the start of a whole new education. Hi, sweetie. What? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Don't you think you're sexy? Oh, my God. For others, it's a more advanced course. You can learn a foreign language. Or expand your present one. You can learn martial arts. Home economics. 
and dies for your protection. Culinary arts. And all sorts of sports. There's something for those into the performing arts. And something for those into nature. Nelson. Columbia Pictures presents Spring Break. It's the reason kids go to college in the first place. I still don't know where my underpants are. Why, what happened to them? I think they ate them. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanist Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time... See you in the void. Welcome back. We're talking about spring break, bro. Or is it bra? Which one are we deciding? Is it bra or bro? I think back then it was probably bra. It's maybe bro now. Valid point. So we'll, we'll keep it authentic to the era. We've been talking about spring break movies, bra, on the Cinematic Void podcast. And up next, we're stepping away from sex comedies to, uh, I guess in a way it's kind of still a comedy. But it's a horror movie. It's a slasher movie, but not really in the slashing sense, more in the electrocution sense. It's a movie from 1989. It's credited to a person named Harry Kirkpatrick, who obviously is not a real and it's a pseudonym. The movie is Nightmare Beach, a.k.a. Welcome to Spring Break. Not Welcome to Spring Break, brah. Missed opportunity. The film was written by Umberto Lenzi, Vittorio Rambaldi, and James Justice. Soundtracks by Claudio Seminetti, best known for being the keyboardist of Goblin. And it stars John Saxon, Michael Parks, and Sarah Buxton. And let's just say this right off the bat, it's part of my favorite, you know, made-up subgenre. And by made-up, I've just made it up. And I'm trying to find excuses to kind of build this as a genre. Italians in Florida. Italian production shoot in Florida for no random reason. But I guess there's a reason, because it's called Welcome to Spring Break, Nightmare Beach. So... I guess that justifies the Florida. And for those of you who haven't seen it, this is this is all the plot you really need. After the execution of a motorcycle gang leader convicted of a murder, a helmeted biker goes on a killing spree during spring break in Florida, electrocuting different teens. And god damn it, this movie's a lot of fun. And I recently rewatched this maybe a couple months ago. I watched it twice, watched it by myself, and then my wife's like, hey, I hear this crazy 80s soundtrack. Why are you withholding this movie from me? So Morgan and I end up rewatching, and she's like, this is a lot of fun. This movie was produced by the same team as Primal Rage, which we talked about on the On Halloween series. I think it was episode two, if I recall. Or if I'm wrong, whatever, just listen to all four. There's nothing wrong with getting your Halloween on in March, April. Lindsay and Justice were also the screenwriters on that movie. Sir Boxton was also a star in Primal Rage, and Simonetti did the score, and Vittorio directed Primal Rage as well as did effects for both movies. And of course, how could we forget? Really Take me high, as long as you're here. 
Yes. The hit song from Primal Rage is also in this movie as another extended musical sequence. And it's pretty amazing because, like, I think there's only, like, a year difference between these movies. And it's just like, no one's going to notice we use the same song, same almost set piece. So to get back to the Harry Kirkpatrick, who's the credit director on this movie. For years, it was believed that Umberto Lenzi was the director of the film, but Lenzi himself denied it. His reason, and, you know, as we talked about, since we talked about a lot of Umberto Lindsay earlier this year, he always has a reason. He felt the script was too close to another one of his films, your least favorite of the giallos we talked about this year, Seven Bloodstained Orchids. Co-writer James Justice donned the Harry Kilpatrick moniker, but he asked Umberto Lindsay to stay on be technical supervisor, even though Lindsay's like, I don't want to be on this fucking movie. And that's what that's the story Lindsay is always told. However, according to Italian film historian Roberto Curdy, Lindsay did indeed direct this film, but refused to put his name on it. And I can't figure out for the life of me why. Because as we talked a lot about Lindsay, Lindsay will shit on movies he's made and still put his name on it. And by all accounts, this movie's a lot of fun. It's definitely gonzo. It definitely has those Lindsay-isms in it. So I don't know why he didn't want to put his name on it. Like, it, I don't know. I'm, you know, Lindsay's going to Lindsay. Kind of, you know, watching both of these pretty recently, I got to say, it's like, I don't see the similarities between Orchids and this movie at all. Sure, there's a murderer and there's like a sort of similar plot thing, but like not enough that like I would constitute as a remake or like a retread or anything. Was it even filmed in Florida? No, I mean, the other movie is filmed in, like, Italy or somewhere in Europe, and, like, they're not even the same. It's, like, I don't recall in Italy, Seven Bloodstained Orchid, it's a bunch of, like, frat boys showing up to, like, a villa and be like, spring break, brah, <laughs> and then get fucking murdered off. I, I don't know. It, it Again, Lindsay's gonna Lindsay, so who knows if he actually directed the fucking movie, but I'll say whoever did, marvelous job, because, like I said, a lot of fun. It's got some... It's actually got some pretty good, like, kills in it, even though, like, it's not really, like, a blood-stabbing slasher thing. It, you know, the killer electrocutes people. So, you know, you don't know if it's, like, a, the ghost of the biker gang leader who gets electrocuted that's taking revenge or it's something else. But, like, you know, the deaths are pretty inve inventive, especially for, like, you know, it's not a typical slasher fare. And, like, I can't remember when Shocker and I guess there's some other, like, electric-based horror movies are coming around close that time but like it might be don't want to say the first because there's obviously probably something before that, that i'm not thinking about but you know i'd say it's pretty inventive i mean he's driving a motorcycle he gets people to sit on it and he just flips a switch and fucking shocks the shit out of them until they're dead <laughs> that is top-notch screenwriting right there and the amount of ways you have to figure out how a guy can electrocute people is it, it's pretty fucking amazing and it, it goes out of its way to figure out different ways and yeah, sometimes it might be stretching it to get there, but like, goddamn it, when it does, perfection. Although this is obviously geared to be more of a horror movie, I actually think it operates pretty well as a sex comedy, more so than Spring Break. And you're like, well, how so? Well, I think the comedy parts of the movie are actually funny, unlike Spring Break. And the unintentional parts that are funny are way funnier than anything in Spring Break too. So it's, you know, it, it succeeds as a horror movie, it succeeds as a comedy. 
It's not a horror comedy, but it succeeds at two genres at once. You know, it's I can't say it's like Return of the Living Dead or Reanimator or something that's intentionally funny, but it's enjoyable. The jokes work. I mean, there's there's a couple things in here that are kind of like just seem right out of a sex comedy. There's a prostitute character that's in it that keeps bringing different Johns back to her hotel room. And she's like got different stories like, oh, I need to pay for college and this and that. And like each John is like a, you know, one's a rich cowboy. One's like a doctor. It, it covers all kinds of bases. So it's like it's a running gag. And so she gets electrocuted. But oh, yeah, spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, at this point, if you haven't watched any of these movies, they were going to spoil. Them. But it's not really spoiling it because how I describe it is never going to live up to what you actually see on the screen, especially when it's coming from a movie that may or may not be directed by Roberto Lindsay. You should know by now it's all going to be fucking gonzo. And the other thing I think that's really interesting, it harkens back to that little bit of an era of the Giallo films where there was motorcycle helmet killers. So it reminded me, maybe not in tone or like setup, but like it, it's in vain with like whether they done your daughters and, and strip nude for your killer. If you throw in that Giallo, the U.S. Giallo adjacent slasher night school, yeah, man, you got a whole subgenre of biker killers. I mean, works many ways. It's got a little Giallo, some sex comedy, some straight up slasher, motorcycles, electricity. What more could you ask for on spring break, really? John Saxon. Exactly. And if you had to guess, what role is John Saxon playing in this movie? Hmm. I know it's hard. It's got to be oh, a cop. You guessed it. John Saxon plays a cop. I, I don't know if there's a running tab of how many times he's played a cop in a movie, but like, I mean, he's played it a lot. And he plays it well, and... This is kind of a different cop for her because it's kind of a bit of a sleazy cop because, you know, he's more concerned about covering up the murders than actually dealing with them because he doesn't want to rule in spring break. It's kind of that jaw scenario where they're like, shit, if people know, like, there's a shark in the water, they're not going to come. Well, we can't let people know there's a fucking guy electrocuting people that might be the ghost of a dead biker. Cover that shit up. So they're, like, hiding bodies and dumping them at the dump and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, for the most part, Saxon does play his cop role by the book, but there's a scene where like the two leads sneak into his trailer trying to look for evidence or anything. They find all these like hidden weapons and then sex toys in there. I don't know if Saxon had any idea that was in the scene or they just filmed it and didn't tell him, but it, it, it added a little extra dynamic to the character that I'd say wouldn't normally be there in the typical John Saxon cop role. And the other actor I want to kind of mention is the great Michael Parks, who's in a ton of things. Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez used him in a ton of stuff in his later in his career. But Michael Parks was also, did I say Twin Peaks already? No. No? Okay. Well, he's also in Twin Peaks. He's one of the Renault brothers. And he plays this tormented and alcoholic medical examiner who's also helping hiding the bodies and, like, you know, trying to cover things up. And honestly, he goes full tilt. He feels so racked with guilt and being drunk, he kills himself. And, like, had it been any other actor, it would be played off as this most ridiculous, stupid thing. And it still kind of is, but because it's Michael Parks, who's such a great actor, that he pulls off this insanity, like, flawlessly. I, I think that's what kind of helps. It's like, you know, a lot of actors that would be showing up for these things would kind of just, like, phone it in. You know, John Saxon might have phoned it in a little bit, because... How many fucking cops can you play in your life? But Michael Parks 
does something with this role. He goes above and beyond. I don't think anyone was paying attention to anything he was actually doing in the movie. He's just like, yeah, just, just, just do the scene and just throw it in. Yeah, I've already mentioned it, but the whole covering up the murder subplot is just pure madness in the best way. Because it's just like, how many times we have to, like, you know, hide this stuff. And, like, you know, there's... It's silly, but it works and it drives the narrative. And, you know, there's all kinds of other subplots. There's the preacher with his daughter that, like, wants to go out and party and he's mad that she's partying. You know, there's, there's good slasher bits. There's good sex comedy bits. And, you know, like I said... Inventive deaths by electrocution, and a whole lot of them. One last thing before we move on from Nightmare Beach, and I didn't spoil the ending, so I might have spoiled one thing, but I'm not spoiling the ending because it's a doozy. I don't know if doozy is the right word. It's 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 a fitting ending, and it's kind of ridiculous, and just goes with the tone of the movie. But one last thing before we move off of Nightmare Beach, aka Welcome to Spring Break, the bikers in the gang. Their insignia is the logo to Lamberto Bava's demons. Why? I have no idea. The only connection I can figure out that connects demons to this movie is Claudio Seminetti. And I'm not sure if, like, Seminetti just had, a, like, a, a box of fucking demons jackets. He's like, well, if the bikers need some, I got all these surplus demons jackets from 1984 or 5. Maybe that's what it is. I'm just going to believe that. Just... No one asks Seminetti if that's true or not. Just just go with that. We're going to take another quick commercial break, but when we return, more Spring Break brah on the Cinematic Void Podcast. I want to get off of this thing! Welcome to Spring Break, the annual migration of the idiots. Biker parking only. Get a grip. Yeah. Look, we don't want any trouble, all right? Edward Diablo Santor, the state stands ready to execute you as charged. Do you have any last words? May the Lord have mercy on you. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Some drunk breakers. I think it's a fun trick. Sick Diablo's biker buddies. Proud he was coming back. This is yours. Solely an officer with a deadly weapon. That's cause to blow your fucking pretty head off. Who killed my friend? Who? Welcome back. We're hitting the beach again here on the Cinematic Void Podcast as we talk about Spring Break, brah. You know, I feel like a little bit dumber each time I fucking say this. It makes each of us, you, me, and every listener, just a little dumber. There's plenty better ways to kill brain cells, but, like, I feel like saying the word brah. Like, you might as well be fucking huffing paint thinner or Freon or something because, like, goddamn, like, I... My brain is just turned to mush, but this next movie we're going to talk about isn't going to turn your brain to mush. In fact, I think, I'd say this is probably my favorite sex comedy ever made, period. And I know that's a bold statement, but we'll get into why, because I, I feel like this achieves things that 
other sex comedies never get close to. And I think it's because it, you know, it it hits it's big on sex, it's big on comedy, and it meshes the two. It's really, really a fucking fantastic fun movie. So I don't know why am I setting it up, and I should just talk about it. The movie we're talking about is from 1982. It's directed by Bud Pat Townsend. Sometimes it goes by Pat, sometimes it goes by Bud. Depends on the movie. And it is The Beach Girls. The film stars Deborah Blee, who was also in Savage Streets, Hamburger the Movie, The Malibu Bikini Shop, and Beach Fever with Kato Caitlin. Shout out Kato. Yeah, shout out Kato. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, the film also stars Val Klein, who, really sadly, this is the only film she's in, and we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. Gina Tomasia, who is probably most famous for being in the ZZ Top Sharp Dressed Man and Give Me All Your Loving videos. And, you know, she later on went to have a second career in the reality TV show Real Housewives of Orange County. But for Void fans, she was also in Ten to Midnight, Up to Creek, and because we've already talked about Up to Creek because of Cheap Trick, hey, second Up to Creek reference. And we'll have to talk about Up to Creek at some point, but not this episode. Also in the film is Animal House's James Dalton, who was also in Malibu Beach, which we'll talk about why that's significant. And Adam Rourke, who can also be seen in Frogs, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and The Stuntman. And, and this is important, very important, is the feature film debut of Corinne Bonner, who went on to make nothing but fucking hits, including Joysticks, Surf 2 that Vinegar Syndrome's getting ready to put out on Blu-ray, I think in May, Zapped, Stewardess School, and Police Academy 4. Like I said, nothing but hits. The film was produced by iconic exploitation film distributor Crown International Pictures. Crown put out a lot of 70s, early or late 70s, early 80s exploitation films like this one, and as well as Malibu Beach, The Pom Hong Girls, Tomboy, things like that. And they also put out what I considered the one of the ultra-sleazy masterworks, which is Don't Answer Your Phone, starring Nicholas Worth. For the plot, for those of you who haven't seen this movie, and really, pause, go watch it. There's a Out of Print Scorpion Blu-ray. I think it's also floating on YouTube if you need to watch it. For the plot, even though, really, is the plot important in these kind of movies? Not really, but you, you need to go from point A to point B. It can't be just like some mumblecore fucking bullshit movie where no one does anything and sits in a room. No one wants to watch that. So anyway, plot. Two college girls, Ducky and Ginger... You were saying something during the break that Ducky was a common name in the 80s, right? But uh, was was that a name that you ever heard a, a, an actual person have, or even as a nickname? No. Who? I mean, you know, unless you're a duck, why would you want to be called Ducky? But <laughs> Anyway, back to the plot. Two college girls, Ducky and Ginger, meet their naive friend Sarah at a Southern California beach house. The house belongs to Sarah's uncle, Carl and to their luck, has allowed them to use the house for the summer while he is gone. So, first conceit, this isn't a spring break movie, this is a summer party movie, but I'll get into why I'm including it. It's, you know, it's pretty loose anyway. Soon after Ducky and Ginger arrive, the two plan the first of many wild parties, but not without some resistance from Sarah. The two continue their plans for more party, including inviting assorted misfits, delivery persons, and people just passing by. Eventually, Sarah's resistance fades, and she joins in with the wild parties. And honestly, this movie's like 90 minutes. I'm pretty sure, like... Maybe 75, 80, maybe 85% of the movie is nothing but a party. 
This movie is action-packed. Action-packed. Non-stop partying. Non-stop people nudity. Talk non-stop nudity. <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm not kidding when I say this movie puts the sex in sex comedy and also puts the comedy in comedy. So it it's probably the most perfect sex comedy because it nails both of those requirements perfectly. Um, I actually screened this film with Where the Boys Are 84 as the fifth Cinematic Void screening when I started back in 2016. I did it as a spring break screening, so that's why I'm including it. Also, it's like, this is a really fucking good movie, and I want more people to see it. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I think this is the best movie of the five we're talking about. But I let's just get into it. I mean, you know, like we already said, it's essentially 90-plus minutes of party. Non-fucking-stop. And while Crown made other movies like, you know, Pom Pom Girls and Malibu Beach, but this is my, you know, like I said, this is personally one of my, you know, favorite sex comedies, and I think it's just, it's fun. And I, you know, I'm sure people are not going to agree with this. I think it's, I'd say top two of the Crown International movies made. I I might put Don't Answer Your Phone just above it, just because, like, that's, that's a whole other level, whole other genre, but... Hey, you got to be able to do sleazy serial killer movies and fun party beach movies. Let's just get into why this movie's so great. The three main leads are, you know, genuinely funny. And in their very own way, they're very sincere and earnest in their, you know, character development. Sarah has an arc. Ducky and Ginger have an arc of some sort, even though it's, you know, about the quest for all. The, the groundskeeper maybe- has an arc. Yeah, I mean, literally, like, even, like, the pizza guy that shows up and gets thrown in the movie, like, he has an arc. (laughs) Fucking Uncle Carl has a goddamn arc. I mean, it's just, it's very seamless in how it pulls off. And, like, yeah, the whole plot of the movie is just partying, but, like, it just, it works. Now, this was a late-night TV staple for years on, like, USA Up All Night and things like that. And for the life of me... And maybe for you, I can't imagine there being an actual TV version of this movie. It's a half an hour long. I don't even think it's that. I think it's like 10 minutes. <laughs> unless they shot a completely alternate version where everyone's like not naked. Because I don't know how this played to TV. I, I know some people, like when I screen it, a few people say like, yeah, I remember watching this on TV. And I just wanted to ask like, what was in it? Yeah, through a static? <laughs> It's like, I mean, this wasn't, I mean, I'm pretty sure it played HBO and Cinemax and things like that at some point, but like, you know, playing like regular like TV or cable TV, how? I can't imagine, you know, Crown making a TV, well, maybe they did. I I think they actually budgeted TV versions in at certain points because they had to like, you know, take out violence, cursing, nudity, all that stuff. But I, I mean, it might work without the nudity and the swearing and the drugs and all that, but, like, I just can't imagine it. And, as we said, plot isn't really important, but, like, it moves it along. And there's a lot of things going on. There's, like, you know, there's the drug boat subplot. There's, like, characters dressed as a burger and ketchup and shit. There's the nosy neighbors. There's, like, Sarah finding herself sexually. There's Uncle Carl saying, fuck it, I'm just becoming a playboy later in life. There's all kinds of stuff. I would say, to me, the highlight is the groundskeeper. He's the the comic relief for the whole movie. He falls down the stairs. He gets shocked at the beginning. He, uh... (laughs) He's great, man. I mean, he goes on a journey. (laughs) And, I mean, yeah. 
Actually, you know, everyone in this movie is great. Even like, you know, Corinne Bonner, who's barely in this movie, who's like the champagne girl where they're like messing around with the champagne bottle and you think it's like some like it's just an extended dick joke until like the cork pops. Well, I guess it's just this dick joke regardless if it's champagne or not. But like she's memorable in it. Like it's hard to get like so many nondescript people to be memorable in it all the way through. And the the main screenwriter of this movie was Patrick Shane Duncan, who went on to write Mr. Holland's Opus and Courage Under Fire. So obviously a little bit of step down from the Beach Girls. I'm joking, but he also probably more of interest for you and I. He also wrote some episodes of Master of the Universe, the animated series. Ooh. So quite a kind of quite a resume, if you think about it. There was additional material written by Phil Groves, who I'm just going to assume he came in and punched up some of the comedy bits here and there. He might have added the groundskeeper stuff and like other things. His only other writing credit was another crown title, which was Cave Girl starring Daniel Roebuck, which it's a pretty fun, but it's a, it's a little on the tamer side for like crown sex comedies. You just watched this for the first time. And what were your expectations going into it? Uh, I mean, the title it's it seems like it, I kind of thought it was gonna be lame, and I absolutely loved it. I had a fucking great time. It was absolutely hilarious. I was laughing out loud. I mean, it. You know, my wife is the one who introduced me to this movie because there was a period she would just go on YouTube and like look at things to watch, and like she just fell down this like rabbit hole of sex comedies and like this and one of the ones we're gonna talk about later were the two she loved the most, and that's. The main reason why I did it is a double feature. It's a party movie where you should be partying while watching it. Not everything needs to be Ingmar Bergman or Tarkovsky and stuff like that. Sometimes a 90-minute sex comedy could be a great all-time movie. It's well done. It's well shot. Really, I mean, the location, obviously, is just like a house in Malibu for, like, again, 90% of the runtime. But it fucking works. And it makes me wonder, like... If the 80s were really like that, why did we move past that? Uh, peeping Toms. Yeah, I guess. And other stuff. and I don't know. I guess, like, you know, eventually you would just drink yourself to death or do too many drugs and just, you know. I, I guess, like, that lifestyle could only last for maybe, like, a week, two weeks. I don't know how long it lasts in the movie. It just it lasts your 20s, you know. <laughs> It lasts to your 20s, and then when you're 30, like, those Jaeger bombs don't sit well. Can't mix your other drinks with tequila. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess you can live that lifestyle through your 20s, and then you'd have to get, a, like, a real job. But Uncle Carl was old, and he fell back into it, but maybe that's because he missed that in his younger days, and he fully embraced the 80s. That pervert. Yeah. I mean, he is an old pervert in the movie. I mean, I guess, like, every guy except for, like, the main guy that falls in love with Deborah Blee's character is... Eh, I guess he's a little bit of pervert. Eh, actually, everyone in the movie's a pervert. Guys, girls, pizza guy. Fucking, like, cops. Peeping Tom neighbors. Yeah, everyone's a pervert. I guess that's okay. It was the 80s. And there was lots of cocaine, I'm, I'm sure. But the movie does have a mystery. Every time I talk about the Beach Girls, I end up going down this rabbit hole trying to figure out what happened to her. It's... It's honestly the disappearance of Valkyrie. It just seems like she stopped acting and disappeared. And I don't 
know why that happened or you know maybe she made this one movie and got married and decided to dip out of acting or maybe she didn't have a good experience i really don't know but like her and donna Locke, who played paula neon maniacs are they're kind of my obsession of like what the fuck happened to them because like in both cases i think they're really really great actors they had really great personality in their roles and then it's the only movie they did and they just disappeared can't find any evidence don't know what happened to him. And I kind of feel like Val Klein, if she had continued a career, could have easily been the queen of 80 sex comedies. Because, you know, she was attractive. She was funny. She had really great comic timing. She had acting chops. So it, it, it doesn't make sense that she wouldn't have done more. But, like, you know, I don't know what's going on in her life or what happened. But, like... I've gone on message boards. I've gone on, like, deep dives trying to figure this out. And, like, no one knows what happened to her. The only lead I could find was a Pinterest account under the name Val Klein with a photo that could be how Val Klein looks now 40-some years later. I don't know if that's her. I'm not about to make a cold call on Pinterest to try to find this out. But, I, you know... I. I think at some point, I'm actually going to do this later this year. So this is a exclusive drop here. I'm going to start work on a Void-style unsolved mystery show. And two of the episodes that I'm working on now is going to be one about Val Klein and one about Donna Locke. And I just I just want to figure it out. Because I'm kind of interested in like actors who just disappear after one role. I mean, I'm sure it's just something like, you're like, eh, I fucking don't like Hollywood. I'm just going back home or... Eh, I want to do something else or whatever, but I don't know. Are you guys in this idea? Let me know, because I'm in the market for a new trench coat so I can do that Robert Stack impression, which will be absolute shit. Also, if you have a creepy alley that I can stand in front of while smoke machine bellows, let me know, because I need a location to do that too. So, yeah, I think that's on the radar. One last thing before we move off of um, the Beach Girls. And this is a little quick hit. The dog stealing bikinis in the beginning was footage repurposed from another Crown International joint, which was Malibu Beach. So, you know, Crown like to recycle stuff. So, not that it really matters or anything. It's a cheap gag, the dog stealing bikinis. But, I don't know. Just throwing it out there. I guess, any closing thoughts before we move on, Nick? See this movie. It's great. As you should. Listen, Nick Vance, Rubik's Cube Master. Right. We're gonna take another quick <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna take another quick commercial break, but when we return, we're gonna be going back to the beach, and this time it's gonna be a little bloody on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Wait till I find something that you like. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. <laughs> Uncle Carl never expected to come home to a surprise party. But the biggest surprise of all is that he wasn't even invited. I have neighbors here. A position in the community. I just can't allow this. Relax, Uncle Carl. You're so tight. Oh, my. It began with his niece and her two friends. Let's have a party! And it turned a house on Malibu Beach into a Pacific party paradise. Crown International Pictures presents the hottest thing to hit the sand since the sun. 
the Beach Girls. That was great. What, the grass or us? Oh, I don't know. Shall we try it all over again so I can make up my mind? If you're a singer or a swinger, whether you're hired help, beyond help, I, I can't, or just I can't, can't help yourself, we'll get a better grip oh, okay. on it. I'm having a little trouble. Wait, I'm uh, okay. there. Okay, let's go. You're invited to a free-feeling, free body-bumping, high-jumping, out of school, out of line, out of control, vacation celebration. Is that a salami in your pocket, or are you just glad to see me? It's a salami. Welcome back. We've been hitting the beaches of Spring Break Bra, there, that I did it again. I just killed some more brain cells. Sorry, guys, but it's spring break. Anyway, we're back on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up next, we're going again away from sex comedies into horror at the beach for a movie that was made in 1980. It's directed by Jeffrey Bloom. It is called Blood Beach. And it's also the third consecutive film in this podcast that has the word beach in the title. But I guess if you're talking about spring break, it should have beach in there. Maybe, I guess. Anyway, the film stars David Hoffman, Mariana Hill, who was in The Baby and Messiah Evil, Burt Young, who's best known as Paulie in the Rocky franchise. But to keep it Void-centric, he was also in Amityville 2, The Possession, which is better than the whole Rocky franchise. Don't at me. Or at me. I don't fucking care. I like Amityville 2 over the whole Rocky franchise. Nothing beats Rocky 4. (laughs) (laughs) And last but not least... John Saxon makes his second appearance on this podcast. Any guess of what his role is in this film, Nick? Uh, Let me think on it for a minute. I bet he's a cop. Correct. John Saxon plays a cop in Blood Beach, just like he did in Nightmare Beach, just like he did in Black Christmas, just like he did in Nightmare on Elm Street and Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors and countless other movies. Like I said, John Saxon played a fucking lot of cops. All cops are bastards, except for John Saxon. I like John Saxon, so. Uh, The film was also co-produced by Hong Kong legend Run Run Shaw, who was one half of the Shaw Brothers film dynasty, which basically made all the great martial art movies in the 70s, as well as some gonzo fucking horror movies that we we should do a podcast on at some point, because those movies are just absolutely fucking nuts. As for the plot of Blood Beach... Something or someone is attacking people one by one on the beach. Some of them are mutilated, but most of them are dragged screaming into the sand by an unknown creature. And I'll just get this out of the way. The film is more or less a Jaws cash-in, although it's coming kind of later in the cycle. It's not during the peak Jaws 75 run of like Grizzly, Day of the Animals, and Piranha. It came out a few years or maybe a year or so after Jaws 2, and even its tagline is a parody of Jaws 2. Now, Jaws 2's tagline was, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. But instead, Blood Beach says, just when you thought it's safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. Which, pretty good twist on the, on the tagline there. Film was shot in lovely Santa Monica, as well as Venice Beach. Which, I guess is lovely too. Maybe. I don't know. You have an opinion on this movie, don't you, Nick? Yeah, it's boring. It's a boring movie. <laughs> um... <laughs> We're, yeah, it's cashing in on Jaws. Were they cashing in on? Do you do you remember in the eighties? I mean, this is early eighties, but uh, everybody everybody's afraid of quicksand in the eighties. 
And it, you know, it's not quite a quicksand movie, but it, it kind of gives that illusion for like most of it till it gives it away, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Quicksand was a real fear in the eighties. I remember being a kid growing up in the eighties, afraid of quicksand. Like I had a sandbox and I was afraid I'd get sucked into it. So quicksand was a real danger. And obviously this movie leans into that, but you know, I, I guess boring is a fair criticism of the movie. It, it's, it's not great. Although this is a movie that I know a lot of like Blu-ray labels have been looking to put out because it's been stuck in limbo since the VHS days. Like there hasn't been a DVD, there hasn't been like a HD upgrade. So I, I mean, maybe that would help with the improvement. I think we end up rewatching this because it's on YouTube because it's outside of a VHS tape. It's the only way you can really see it. For a monster movie at a beach, it's not as fun as I would want it. Maybe we'll be too hard on it. Eh, maybe not. I don't know. If you like Blood Beach, tell us why. Otherwise, I don't know. We're going to keep with her opinion. Or try to convert us. Can you convert us into Blood Beachers? Is that what fans of Blood Beach are? Blood Beachers? There's a whole crew of people that call themselves the Blood Beachers. And they're going to be mad at us. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to get nothing like... We're going to be put on like a film Twitter list about people that don't like Blood Beach and like all that shit. I don't know. The fucking Blood Beachers are fucking real deal. Speaking about the actual movie, the monster, I guess, resembles like a Venus flytrap when you actually see it. And, you know, I do think because of the quicksand phobia of the 80s, that those little scenes work pretty good. And you don't really see the monster to the end. And then when you see it, they just blow the fuck up, which is fair. You got to end the movie at some point. Now, talking about, you know, getting sucked in the sand, the creature attacks, it, it reminds me of another thing. I don't know if people still do this, but I do remember when I went to the beach as a kid, scared of getting sucked in the quicksand, that there was a bunch of people, and I actually think my dad had one too, would bring, you know, metal detectors to the beach, looking for buried treasure or change or fucking tin cans or I don't know what the fuck you're looking for at a beach. Did you ever go use a metal detector as a be- at a beach when you were a kid, Nick? I, I never tried it, no. I thought it was, when I was like really little, I thought it was super cool. But then when I got older, I'm like, that's, that's not cool. <laughs> Do you remember those toy lawnmowers or vacuums you have as a kid that you push around that have the balls like floating around when you push it around yeah. the floor? That, 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 that seems like the adult version of it, except <laughs> there's no balls popping around as you move around. It's just like a fucking annoying sound as you're trying to like, I don't know what the fuck people like. I guess the other thing in the 80s is people thought buried treasure was available at all beaches. If there's quicksand, you know, a rich person could have got sucked in the quicksand. They could have had like a million dollars in their pocket made of gold or I don't know, fucking whatever. I yeah, I don't understand the fucking metal detector thing. Yeah, it's like the Goonies. Yeah. It's like there's some treasure somewhere you got to go find. It's just another weird 80s trope. Yeah, metal detectors, quicksand. I take back what I said about the 80s. The 80s fucking sucked. If if the high point is fucking metal detectors and um, quicksand, you know, that shit can die with Reagan. Have what up, BMX, pogo balls, Rubik's Cube. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I know, I know. Talking cars. That, yeah, there, there's a lot of weird shit in the 80s. Now, speaking of Rubik's Cubes, I know I busted your balls about this this whole entire episode. But the reason why is we're setting up a Cinematic Void Rubik's Cube challenge that will take place on a, at a future episode later this year where Nick <laughs> and I 
I don't, I don't know how this is going to work on podcasts because no one's going to be able to fucking see it. I guess we got to do a video of it, but we're going to like race to see who can finish the Rubik's Cube first. And the winner just gets bragging rights and a metal detector, I guess. I got a head start on you, but you know. Look, man. I'll give you some time. Yeah, give me some time. I know the pandemic's ending. I really don't have free time to learn how to do a Rubik's Cube, but God damn it. It's the least I could do for being an asshole and just busting your balls over and over and over again. Anyway, the, back to this movie. Like, I think my favorite scene in the movie has nothing to do with the monsters, but it's that fucking dopey scene that's at like the club where like there's like a lounge singer and then like he does a duet with someone. I don't even remember the song. It's just not even memorable, man. I, I don't remember the song. I just remember how like earnest and like awkward the duet was, and I thought it was kind of funny. The other takeaway out of the movie is like I think John Saxon's solid. You know, he does a really good like. I don't want to say Patton-esque speech of like, you know, we got to find this thing. We got to do whatever it is. Like he, he goes on a long tirade, but Burt Young is so fucking nonchalant in this movie. I don't know if he's trying, if it's a character choice, if it was a direction he's given. It's like, I feel like you could have put a fucking like wax figure of Burt Young and had his voice recorded on a tape recorder and just hit play every time he had to do his dialogue, and it'd be the same performance. Look, I love Paulie. Don't get me wrong. Even though I think Amityville 2 is better than the entire Rocky franchise. But, yeah, it's just like... I, in fact, I think he narrates the trailer to Blood Beach, which is, and he does it in the same like nonchalant style. It's like, hey, there's a monster. I guess we gotta kill it. Come see this movie. Blood Beach. <laughs> like, that's the fucking trailer. I don't know, man. I like Burt Young. I do feel bad with him. What? What? I I think we. I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast. I know we talked about it while we were getting ready to record a podcast. But like, I think Sylvester Stallone is like was doing a director's cut of like was it Rocky four or five that Paulie got the robot? Yeah, it's one of. The, it was uh. I think it. I think it was four. Was it four? Eh, I'll I'll move four up. Four and Amityville two are now equal because it has the robot. Shit. Or was it? Or was it the Tommy Davidson one? I don't know. You know what? I we could look this up. We could correct it, but you know, I want to catch and see if anyone's listening. Tell us, or tweet us, or message us. Let us know which Rocky had the fucking ro- or Paulie's robot in it. Which, although according to Stallone, will no longer exist because he's doing a director's cut and he's removing the robot. And he made this announcement on Twitter, and people are like, "You can't do that." He's like, no, the robot's a terrible idea. I gotta cut it out. And like, people were just like, jump on Stallone's like, you're ruining my childhood. He's like, I don't care. The robot sucks. I'm cutting it out. So rest in peace to Paulie's robot. Stop or my mom will shoot. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> but my that reminds me, and we're gonna get off topic here. It's just fine. We're talking about Blood Beach, so we can jump off topic here. It reminds me of. I can't remember if it came up at Beyond Fest. I think it might have, but like, or it was just a piece of trivia that Arnold Schwarzenegger allegedly pretended to show interest in Stop or My Mom Will Shoot because he wanted Stallone to take the job because he knew it was a terrible movie. <laughs> because they, they had some like petty like rivalry in the 80s, obviously, because they were two of the biggest action stars. Schwarzenegger pretended he was interested in this movie, and Stallone, like, went out of his way to get this role, so Schwarzenegger couldn't, and what you got was, stop, or my mom will shoot. Incredible. 
And back to Blood Beach. So, besides nonchalant Burt Young, I mean, again, this is just a Jaws ripoff. And, you know, like Jaws, they blow the fuck out of the creature at the end. And the Doctor character was like, well, I think this is a worm. I don't know how they determined it's a worm when it looks like a Venus flytrap. Whatever. They're just saying it's a worm. And basically saying because it's a giant worm and they blew it up that all the pieces of the worm could regenerate and create a whole new army of these things. And interesting enough, I don't know if you know this, Steven Spielberg had a different ending he wanted to do for Jaws originally. So after Roy Schreider's Chief Brody character blows up the shark at the end and him and Richard Dreyfuss as Hooper like swimming back, in the background you're supposed to see all these little shark fins pop up like there's a whole swarm of sharks heading to Amityville. That's what he wanted to do and Universal like basically said like, no, no, we gotta end with the kind of upbeat ending. At the end of Blood Beach, you look at the beach and you see all these new sinkholes, quicksand things appearing, which kind of gives the theory that like now there's this whole army of these Venus flytrap worm creatures which I guess was setting it up for a sequel that didn't happen. I mean, I don't know how this movie did it box office wise. I'm guessing it might have done okay, but wasn't enough. Or they didn't want to spend the money and figure out how to do like 40 of these worm things. I don't know. Kind of rather go back and talk about Schwarzenegger tricking Stallone and doing Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. We'll we'll do an episode on just just on Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Yeah. And or we'll we'll talk about the Paulie's robot from Rocky Four or Five or whichever one it is. Actually, I, I think Blood Beach could have been improved by Paulie's robot. I, I'd even go on out, out on a limb and say Amityville Two would be improved by Paulie's robot. So you may be cutting them out of the Rocky movies, Stallone, but that's not going to stop me or anyone else that has editing skills from inserting it into other movies like Blood Beach and Amityville Two or any movie that. Burt Young's in. I guess he's in some other respectable movies, too. We're going to take another quick commercial break, but when we return, we won't have Paulie's Robot, but we'll have more Spring Break Madness here on the Cinematic Wood Podcast. Pretty, isn't it? The beaches of L.A. Playground of America. Until this beach turned into a living nightmare. You said creature. Why did you use that word? I don't know. What would you call it? Blood Beach, man. Yeah, right on. Blood Beach. The beach is a weird beat for us cops. You've got the kids, the old people, the street fiddlers, those singles. uh, The crazies all lost in their own world. There was every form of human life on this beach. Mattress Bermudas, bleeding mattress. They were kind of old, but, you know, they were his favorite pair. They were still in good condition. But under the beach, there was this, I don't know, this horrible thing. And we still haven't figured it out. What the hell are we looking for? I don't know. But maybe if we dig deep enough, we'll find out. We police always look for the obvious, but this wasn't normal. Nah, not even for California. Doctors figure that there's been considerable brain damage. How considerable? Vegetable soup. Blood Beach is an okay place to visit, but I wouldn't want to die there. I'm not kidding. I'm fine. My feet. 
Hickman, Mariana Hill, John Saxon, and Burke Young as Lieutenant Royko. Blood Beach, where the water may be the safest place to be. Welcome back. We've been talking about spring break, brah. Again, killing those fucking brain cells. I, I, I should stop doing it, but I've already done it for all five of these, so, you know. And this last movie kind of circles back to the first movie we talked about, Spring Break, because it takes place on Spring Break. It also takes place in Fort Lauderdale. It is from 1984, and it is directed by High Aberback. It is Where the Boys Are 84, or Where the Boys Are, depending on what poster, trailer, title you see. The film stars Lisa Hartman, who is in Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. Grease 2's Lorna Loft, who is the daughter of Judy Garland and half-sister Eliza Minnelli. Wendy Shaw, who does the voice of Francine on American Dad, but also has been in several Joe Dante films, including The Burbs, Small Soldiers, and Inner Space. Lynn Holly Johnson, who was in The Watcher in the Woods. Chopping Mall's Russell Todd. Hey, you're coming back to Killer Robots and Pauly's Robots and all that kind of stuff. Also has Christopher McDonald, who's probably best known for his role in Happy Gilmore, but he was also in Grease 2 with Lauren Luff. And Asher Brawner, who was in Jack Hill's masterpiece, Switchblade Sisters, which is actually a masterpiece. I saw someone online was complaining, like, stop using masterpiece to describe films. Well, Switchblade Sisters is a masterpiece. Go fuck yourself. Christopher McDonald was in Dirty Work. He was. Also a masterpiece. Yeah, that's true, man. I... You know, Chris McDonald is one of my favorite underrated actors because he just he he does like you know kind of sneaks in the movies doing character bits or playing a villain or you know he, he does all kinds of stuff and he's usually great in everything. So shout out to Christopher McDonald. We should be talking about him more than Stallone. Not that there's anything wrong with Stallone because there's not, but Christopher McDonald's pretty rad. Anyway, this film is a loose remake of the 1960s film Where the Boys Are, which is based on the novel of the same name by Glendon Swarthout. Plot-wise, the film is about four college co-eds, Virginal Jenny, outgoing Carol, wealthy and spoiled Southern Belle Sandra, and horny Lori, who traveled to Fort Lauderdale for Easter weekend on spring break and become involved in a series of adventures and misadventures, which include the naive Jenny being pursued by a musician drifter Scott, and Sandra's snobbish cousin, Camden, who also is a piano prodigy, which comes into play a little bit later. Meanwhile, Carol is seeking a break in a relationship with her jealous boyfriend, Chip, who follows her down to Florida. See? Plot point for all these beach sex comedies. Someone has to come after someone who's mad that they went the spring break. Sandra pursues a romance with a local policeman, Ernie, who arrests her on the first night for being drunk and disorderly, while Lori just seeks any man she can get her hands on. And again, I previously mentioned this was part of a double feature I did with the Beach Girls back in 2016, and it was my first attempt to try to work sex comedies into the void, programming-wise. You know, if you can watch fucking Jason Voorhees murder people having sex, you can just watch people having sex, and then something silly happens. You know, it's... You may, you might need to think about it if, you're, if you enjoy murder over sex. What does that say about you? Or is that too philosophical? I don't know. We've been all over the place on this episode. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I noticed this movie gets a lot of hate online. It was nominated for some Razzies. And the only thing I can think of of why this movie gets so much hate is that, unlike a lot of sex comedies which are male-based chasing after women, this is more female-centric. Which, 
shouldn't make a difference. Like, you know, the movie's funny, the cast has chemistry. I don't get why people hate on this movie. Like, it's very, very inoffensive. I mean, it is a sex comedy, there's nudity, and there's probably offensive stuff in it. But, like, overall, I don't see what there really is to hate about it. Now, you just watched this for the first time pretty recently, right? I did, yeah. I, I really liked this one. I thought it was a, a good time. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have the nonstop partying, like, chaos energy of the Beach Girls. But I think for, like, an 80s sex comedy that isn't too sex heavy. I think it's a really good, like, it's a fun movie. Some of the highlights for me, there's the blow up doll funeral. So, um, Lori brings a blow up doll with her and they're trying to teach Sandra how to make out with it before she goes on her date with the cop and the blow up doll, you know, pops and deflates and they give it a funeral at sea while they're all smoking weed. And according to Wendy Shaw, they were actually smoking weed when they actually did it. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of weed smoking in this movie. I mean, I, I, I think they did it all for real, and I, you know, I think, hell, man, you're making a fun movie, have fun making it, whatever. I guess you can't do that now, there's probably, like, laws and regulations, but also, weed is legal now here in California, so, I'm sure it's fine. I don't know, I I don't know what the union rules are, anyway. Uh, the other highlights include the best beach bot contest with Carol, played by... Lauren Luff, who's like basically in this contest to win money so they can bail out Sandra and Lori so they don't like, because they get in jail for drunk and disorderly on the first day they're there. There's also when they're at Sandra's aunt house where they're having a stuffy soiree, a bunch of spring breakers like invade, like there's a boat that fucking jumps and lands on the like on the property and like it turns into a little bit party. Not quite Beach Girls insanity of a party, but still pretty good 80s rager. And this movie has what I consider one of the great moments of all 80s cinema. More people need to see it because it needs to be, it needs to be up there. And what I'm talking about is the absolute fucking showstopper performance of theme for Jenny in the climax of the movie. And I know we already talked about this when we, I think it was the Soundtrack Serenade episode, right? Mm-hmm. And if you want to hear us gush about how amazing this is, you can go back and listen to that episode. I'll just say it's like, it's, you know, it starts out with the stuffy, like, cousin doing this, like, epic piano piece. And then, like, the other person that's going after Jenny, the Russell Todd character shows up and he's got, you know, Chris McDonald's playing bass and, like, Russell Todd's like playing keyboards and he's singing this really impassioned like Jenny, Jenny, like shit smokes. Like 
God damn it. It's like, how is this not like an 80s staple? There's a there's a, a couple of great power pop songs in this in this movie, um, but this is more of like a it's, this is, is in that vein, but it's a little more like foreigner or something. Foreigner or Journey or something like that. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I had said that on the previous episode, but I kind of noticed that more this time around. I'm just like this is very in more in that realm, you know. I don't know if Foreigner came up, but like I I do hold this to another song we've talked about a lot, you know. We've talked about it, I think, multiple times, including the soundtrack serenade episode, which is Baby Lied from Neon Maniacs. Again, the second Neon Maniacs reference. Obviously, I'm going out of my way for it, but like those, those two songs, Baby Lied and Theme for Jenny, are just Jesus Christ. Like They should be on everyone's 80s soundtrack playlist. Fuck all that, you know, Breakfast Club and that fucking horse shit. Give me fucking Theme for Jenny and goddamn um baby lied any day of the week it might have to do more with their sensibilities of like you know pop music and like power pop and like i don't want to say punk because i don't think any of those songs are actually punk in the slightest way but like i think the the notion of like just being catchy and emotional and fitting a scene i think those two did it above and beyond what a lot of things that are celebrating 80s movies don't even come close to yeah, this movie also had uh, Rick Derringer, Phil Seymour, Sparks, so a number of number of bangers on in this. Uh, Phil Seymour uh, was in the Dwight Twilley band, um, who you may know the song from uh, "You're Next." That song, the song that plays over and over at the neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. That's a Dwight Twilley band song. Oh shit! So that was a uh, Phil, Phil Seymour, like I say, who's on this soundtrack. Yeah. I- you know, I think we did a dance contest when we showed this at Cinematic Void. I think we used the Sparks song. Sparks' song was Mini Skirted. That was the name of the song. It's actually a really catchy kind of like electro pop kind of song. Very dancey. And because we mentioned Sparks, I have to mention their star-studded appearance in another of my all-time favorite movies, Roller Coaster, which apparently they've disowned. I don't know if they disowned being on the Where the Boys Are 84 soundtrack, but... Uh, I guess one last thing before we move off to the soundtrack, besides having, you know, Jenny and Sparks and Phil Seymour and Rick Derringer and all that, it also has the film star Lisa Hartman singing a cover of Where the Boys Are from the original 60s movie. I don't think you hear it until, like, the end credits, though, and it's actually really good. And funny enough, Lorna Luff actually did a version. I think she did a disco version of it. That was released as a single. Sadly, neither version, I think, charted very well. But, I don't know. I, I find it interesting that, like, two of the stars movie basically covered the song two different ways. But Lisa Harbin's song's on the soundtrack, and it's actually pretty good. I, I, I think the whole soundtrack's probably on YouTube if you want to check it out. One last thing. This was the first film released by TriStar Pictures, who had a very wild year in 1984 because they also released Silent Night, Deadly Night, even though it was pulled from theaters like two weeks later because of the We Don't Like Santa as a killer movie. And another Void favorite, Meatballs 2. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to turn. It's going to be Read, Watch, and Listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Fort Lauderdale is a zoo. It's full of millions of guys who are just looking for animal sex and debauchery. Exactly. That's why we're going. Four gorgeous girls with their biggest dreams and their teeniest bikinis on the way to where the boys are. Good alert! 
Thank you, God. Oh my God, it's a supermarket of sex. I want to meet some total bonehead with the most gorgeous bod. I'm talking Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> hey guys, come on in. Hi, ladies. What are you kidding me? What are you doing? I'm shooting a documentary. On what half-nude college girls? Get out of here. Where the parties never end. Where everything goes. Where anything can happen. Even love. Place your lips on either one of his nipples, okay? Lips firmly. Bite it. Where the girls are, that's where the boys are. Where the boys are, 84. Where even your wildest dreams can come true. My God, it's Conan. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last podcast, or just in general. Maybe it's just today. Maybe it was a week ago. Time is a flat circle. Who knows how long it's been between podcasts. We record these all, like, in the same day. Would you know? I don't know. Probably. Maybe. Anyway, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? Well, one of the things that I've been watching, um, I have been watching much, but Paramount just released a DVD of both seasons of Wonder Chosen. Um, and it's... Uh, the thing that's kind of goofy about it, though, is like, why did they put it out on DVD? Why didn't they do a, a Blu-ray? Um, that I don't know. So there's no Blu-ray version still, but there you go. Uh, Wonder Shows and show from 2003-ish that was on MTV2. It's insane. It's 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 a fake kids show. It's not for kids at all. It's tasteless. It's it's fucking insane. It's kind of that. Uh, it, it's kind of a Adult Swim before Adult Swim. I think it was maybe just right before. I also just watched uh, Wings of Desire, Vim Vender's uh, Bruno Gantz film. Um, fucking amazing. Um, it was. I kind of knew the premise going in, but I kind of went in blind, and I'm glad that I did. But uh, I, w- I kind of wish I went in more blind. Anyway, fucking amazing film. See it. See it without knowing anything about it. I, I, I recommend that, actually. Have you ever seen the remake? No, I know that's isn't that when that like Goo Goo Dolls song yeah. is from is like completely huge. Yeah, I forget. I forget how they even that Goo Goo, Goo Dolls song was like no no something like that. It's just like that. No words, just like no 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 whatever. Anyway, sorry. Um, I haven't watched much else. I've been uh, leaving my house. I've been working outside of my house, and actually, um, very recently. I went on a little road trip up to San Jose, and I went to the Winchester Mystery House. Ooh, I've been there. That Morgan and I actually have been there. We went for our honeymoon back in 2011. Yeah, it's 2011. Goddamn. It's been a bit. Ten years. But, like, what'd you think of it? Oh, it was great. I had, I had a great time. I also uh, stayed at the Brookdale Lodge while I was up there, which is also, like, a famous haunted place. It's kind of between San Jose and Santa Cruz. No shit. 
Hmm. Um, it's where like the, there's a creek that runs through the lobby of the hotel. It's not really there anymore, but it was originally built that way. It's like very strange. And uh, the owner's daughter, the owner's like 13 year old daughter, this was in like the 20s or something, died in the creek, of course, as as you do when. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, so the, of course, then it's very haunted. And so I stayed the night there. I didn't get haunted. Uh, and yeah, I've derailed this. But yeah, I went to Santa Cruz, went to where they filmed The Lost Boys the pier there the so um yeah so that's why i haven't watched a bunch of stuff lately is because i've actually been leaving my house um so on those trips i've listened to some audiobooks so reading uh i listened to cosmic trigger by robert anton wilson um uh, and then i also listened to headache factory by jim goad so some uh some nihilism and some uh some stuff to kind of open your third eye there um and what else Oh, and I've been listening to another audiobook called Thinking Through Film, uh, subtitled Doing Philosophy While Watching Movies by Damien Cox and Michael P. Levine. Huh. And they talk a bunch about uh, like Michel Haneke, Kurosawa, it's that kind of stuff. A lot of mes- metaphysics, AI, time travel, free will, you know, those types of things. The, 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 the on-brand for Nick Vance kind of stuff, yeah. Um, been listening to DJ Muggs, Rome Street, still Death to a Magician. It's a fucking dude. It's it's great. So yeah, also also this past Friday, uh, the DJ Muggs Flea Lord record came out. I forget what it's called. Uh, that Benny the Butcher is still in rotation. The plugs I met too. Uh, the Armand Hammer Haram that he did with Alchemist just came out. And then I've just been listening to a bunch of heavy stuff. Damnation AD, that new God's Hate LP. Uh, tons of dying fetus and next step up. Um, yeah, that's about it, man. Let's see. Read. I've been slipping all my reading. I'm still reading the same book I talked about the last few podcasts. And I'm not even going to mention it because this is how bad I've been reading. It's taken me like three months to read like what is essentially a 150 page book, but whatever. Uh, trying to get my reading mojo back. Uh, watch. Still, still been on a bit of a tear. I recently watched the two new Cauldron Films titles, Crimes of the Black Cat and Beyond Terror. Crimes of the Black Cat I've seen. It's a kind of really cool giallo. It's got, it's got some nasty deaths. Got you know a blind guy trying to solve a murder. Top notch. Also comes with the soundtrack, which is absolute banger. Um, Beyond Terror was a movie I'd never seen, and um, Scott Carlson was talking about. It, I think. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but like he had done the liner notes for this release, and it was a movie he hadn't seen until like he got asked to do liner notes for it. And like, it's a weird like when you look at the artwork, it kind of sets it up as like this hardcore supernatural kind of blind dead movie. But what it really is is like it's kind of like a criminal movie. The first half, like you know, there's this sister and brother team, and like another two guys that you know. The sister, like, mugs some guy, gets some money, and they buy some shitty drugs with it. And they're like, well, we need more money. So they go rob a restaurant, and they kill people, and they take some hostages. And then they stop at this old lady's house and kill the old lady dog and her grandson. But the old lady's a Satanist. So she, like, as she's dying, conjures Satan to go get revenge. So it becomes this weird, like, kind of like Eurocrime movie. And then it just becomes this supernatural, weird slow burner and it just gets more and more bizarre. There's some blasphemous stuff in it, and 
it was really surprising because like I didn't know I didn't know where the fuck this movie was going and like for a movie that came out in 1980 from Spain that like really no one has seen up at this point whew, shout out to Cauldron shout out to Jesse like they've been like knocking them out of the park for these releases I also watched two of the three movies in the um, Vinegar Syndrome Forgotten Gialli uh, Volume 3 box set. I watched the two, I think, Spanish co-productions, Murder Mansion and Crazy Desires of a Murderer. The other film in there is Autopsy, which I've seen, so I haven't really rewatched that one, but I'll probably get to it at some point. I watched a movie, like kind of a throwback 50s sci-fi you know, big giant monster movie called Blue Monkey, a.k.a. Insect, which has these giant insects that, like, are killing people in the hospital. Stars Steve Railsback and John Vernon. Also, watched a couple things I picked up at the last Criterion Flash sale. Uh, I got Robert Altman's Nashville, which has been a much-needed blue-grade upgrade. I ended up grabbing that one because apparently it's gone out of print for some reason. Also got um, Robert Altman's Three Women that stars Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall. It's kind of a weird, dreamy movie. I have actually an idea for podcast after rewatching that. I also watched Brian De Palma's Sisters, which was another. I had the old Criterion disc, so I upgraded that to blue, too. I got an idea of, like, I want to do an episode at some point where we do Three Women, Sisters, and um, Persona. So, like, a Criterion, like, artsy triple feature. Something I'm thinking about. I also watched The Parallax View, starring Warren Beatty, directed by Alan J. Palooka, who also did All the President's Men. I think we talked about this on episode two way back. Mm -hmm. And i also been watching Silk Stalkings. Do you remember that show? I remember it, but I, I don't know if I ever saw it. I remember bits and pieces of watching it as a kid. It's like, it's kind of like Law & Order SVU before that existed. It was produced by Stu Seagal, who um, directed Drive-In Massacre and also made a bunch of like adult films, including um, Insatiable with Marilyn Chambers. Um... Uh, Kind of nice. I've been putting on as I'm going to sleep, so I'm kind of like half watching it. But I saw Robert Forrester was a guest, and Gilbert Godfrey, and I don't know. Kind of a nice '90s throwback. Listen, uh, I listened to that Rome DJ Muggs record, uh, but the big thing I've been listening to is the new Benny the Butcher, produced by Harry Fraud. Uh, the plugs I met too. Holy shit, man! So good. It's it's too good. Like it's been on constant repeat. I know there's a song where I don't want to call them out, but like they definitely sampled a, let's say, sort of famous TV show. I noticed it doesn't have the beat tag on it for probably <laughs> that reason, but like, I it took don't don't beat snitch. No, nah, I'm not going to. But like, I was listening to the song. I was like, why does this sound familiar? And they got to like the very very unmistakable part of it, and it's just like they chopped it up a bit. And I'm sure 99 percent of the people listening to it have zero clue outside of probably being you again no beat snitch but like the whole record's really good like the first single i think was thanksgiving that fucking track is just it's a scorcher yeah i think my my favorite is the one with two chains i think i realized i really i really like two chains and i guess to close out the last thing i've been listening to is cannibal corpse dropped another song off their forthcoming album this song was called murderous rampage it's a little slayer-esque just like kind of a driving beat. It's not really like a... It's more thrashy than death metal, but like it's still fucking rips. Again, I feel like the Eric Rutain influence... Eric Rutain has been a producer on a lot of those 
later Campbell Corpse records, he's also been Hate Internal. Well, that's his main band is Hate Eternal. And he was also more of an angel for a bit. But, like, something about the addition to him is, like, it's doing something to Campbell Corpse. Because, like, it, this record seems like a fucking monster. And the last few records have been really good. But, like, this one's just, like, at least the first two songs I've heard have been, like, absolutely fucking scorchers, so comes out in like the next two weeks or something right like pretty yeah, soon. it's pretty soon so i i'm looking forward to listening to all of that that wraps up this episode of the cinematic void podcast coming up on cinematic void up all night in the cinematic movie on april 9th we'll be teaming up with our friends at masker video for a very special shot on video double feature then on april 23rd our friends from severn films will be partnering up with us again for a single feature and then on may 14th we're teaming up with a brand new label, Culture Shock Releasing, and we'll be showing one of their upcoming releases. So mark your calendars and make sure you check that shit out. Until next time, see, see you in the, the void. void. The ratio down in Fort Lauderdale for guys and girls is three to one. So what you want to do is, you know, it's like a meat market down here. You don't want to be too obnoxious, too animalistic. <laughs> Survey your target before you go over there. Maybe uh, ask her if she needs some suntan lotion rubbed on her back. Perhaps uh, offer her a beer or something. You don't want to be overly aggressive. And if they start giving you the brush off, and just take off and hit another one. Yeah.